Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Has the news got you unsettled and worried? Feeling uncomfortable with the absolute state of things? Well, one way to help that unnerving feeling of discomfort is by heading over to British-Boxers.com where they do knockout undies and nightwear and you'll be as snug as a bug in some very nice pants as you swear in despair at the television. Not only do British boxers have luxurious two-fold cotton on all of their clothes, but they're also a lovely ethical bunch who respect workers' rights, manufacture all their stuff with minimal waste, and, I mean, actually, they're almost too nice a bunch. It's ridiculous. Hasn't anyone dug up any dirt on them? Have they ever returned a library book back late or something? Wow, no, not even... Oh my goodness. Well, if you grab great garms from BritishBoxers.com, then use the code PARPOLBRO15 at the checkout and you'll get a swanky 15% off whatever you buy, which will hopefully make you feel less sad that you're just not as good as them. Sorry, I'm just projecting now. BritishBoxers.com. They must have once done swears at someone's pocket. No, not even that. Bonkers. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that can't be infiltrated by spies as its content is already mostly hack. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and as the Conservatives blame the fire attack on a migrant centre in Dover on people's frustrations with refugees, does that mean it's a suitable form of protest because, wow, people are really pissed off at the government? It's a very common trope in stories that the friend or aide that helped you along the way is actually, shock and horror, big twist times, the enemy all along. In a clever, well-written story, the character's true evil intentions would be masked, with the occasional clue pointing you to the direction of who they actually are. But unfortunately, the long-running series that is the UK seems to be written by people who'd get fired from Hollyoaks for having all the subtle narrative ability of a foghorn with a typewriter. In many ways, it's been like a Columbo episode, where at the beginning we saw it was the Conservative government who were the biggest threats to the country, and then within weeks everyone was convinced it was someone else entirely. No, it's not the government who have vampired the country dry of its funds and public services, it's definitely this boat full of people who have zero belongings and a ton of undiagnosed PTSD, so make sure they go into a home that's basically a human filing cabinet. Yes, they probably should be attacked for daring to assume this country was in any way friendly, and God forbid what might become of us if they contribute society as they'd like to, rather than patriotically use it for personal profit as the world burns. And yes, it is definitely terrorists and spies who want to take us down, but don't worry, the Home Secretary is on the case by leaking everything herself first, so it's no longer as exciting once everyone on the internet has seen it. 
are we even a target for violent political hijackers anymore or would they land on our shores with their supposed devious plans and think, oh shit, no, the Conservatives have done that already. There's nothing left for us here. Everyone, let's go home. Perhaps I'm being naive, and this is the way that the Conservative government protect us. I mean, we can't be attacked if there's nothing left to attack. We can't suffer from high bills if we're all homeless. The NHS won't struggle if it isn't there anymore, and there's no need to prevent climate change if they speed it up so much we can't reverse it. Anyway, phew, I am so glad we're in safe hands. Oh no, sorry, sorry, those hands appear to be waving goodbye at us. Is the Home Secretary an uncredited extra in A Bug's Life, Suella Braverman, a villain, with her surname like a poorly thought-through Marvel character? Or is she simply being the best Home Secretary possible by giving intelligence agencies extra work and therefore keeping them on their toes? It is tricky to say, I mean, except it isn't, because she's clearly an idiot and terrible and a terrible idiot. Suella Braverman was rehired in her job just six days after she was forced to resign from being Home Secretary for leaking market-sensitive information. And I don't just mean which fruit and veg is going to be two for a pound on Saturday. That was all under temporary Prime Minister and not the sharpest knife in the drawer, or in fact a knife at all, but a very confused child's spoon, Liz Truss, just before her own resignation. And Braverman then said she'd made an honest mistake by sharing an official document from her personal email address to a colleague in Parliament, which is a breach of the ministerial code. It was just a mistake, right? A one-off. Maybe she was known as Leaky Sue by Whitehall staff because every time someone asks Suella Bravman an even vaguely difficult question, she pisses her pants. But I mean, anyway, who cares, right? Who hasn't breached ministerial code in these last few years? Only real swats uphold an air of responsibility when being in charge of the country, am I right? I'm pretty sure the ministerial code is only there to single out how the losers that follow it aren't fit for governance anyway, as there's no chance they'd prorogue Parliament unlawfully, fail to declare loads of suspicious donations, or try to let their friends off dodgy lobbying. And what's the fun in that? Jesus, may as well get a job at the boring shop, you dull faces. Luckily for Suella Braverman, when the latest edition of the worst Prime Minister and star of flushed away Rishi Sunak was the only person they had left for the job, he must have realised she was just trying to copy all the other Tory MPs, and that's why he got her back in the Cabinet after less than a week. Sadly, it wasn't just because after six days of having to deal with paper bag animated by a weak fart, Grant Shapps, that almost anyone would seem better to do it, even the last fucking awful Home Secretary. No, Braverman was one of the many Cabinet decisions Sunak made after he announced that he was going to fix his predecessor's mistakes but then a few hours later just rehired them all instead. Not only did Suet Ball Therese Kofi go from Health Secretary to Environment Secretary, meaning she could now endanger the life of the planet as well as people, but reconstruction of an early human who died trying to pet a rhino, James Cleverly, is somehow still Foreign Secretary, probably on account of everything being foreign to someone as stupid as him. But to cement these shitwads into the foundation of a supposedly new government made up of all the same people as the last two, in the same way that if you take two out-of-date ready meals and mix them together, it's technically a new meal that will still make you sick, Rishi Sunak also brought back the only politician to have his own cellophane wrapping, Dominic Raab. He is Justice Secretary again, because he knows all the things wrong with the legal sector on account of causing them when he was last in the job. Then, if a bollard was brought to life, Oliver Dowden, he's been brought back, presumably because otherwise he'd just be at home gurning and trying to eat his own shoes. I'm sorry I ran over your cat for a face, Michael Gove is back as Housing Secretary and he promises he'll finish off the job of levelling up, which sounds more like an assassination threat than a promise. And as well as hordes of other arseholes, worst ever Education Secretary, National Security Threat and zombie donkey Gavin Williamson has been made Minister without portfolio. You know, so he can attend all the Cabinet meetings and leak any details Suella Braverman hasn't managed to yet. 
The Home Secretary got to come back just six days after being fired because, as Rishi Sunak said, everyone makes mistakes and deserves a second chance, right? Everyone. Well, you know, unless you're on benefits, obviously, but apart from them and refugees and people convicted of minor offences. But other than those very, very few exceptions, if you are a Conservative MP, which, hey, aren't most of us really, then, you know, it doesn't hurt anyone to just let him have another go. I mean, apart from all the people who did get hurt by being put into an unsafe processing centre that Bravman ignored calls about. The Manston Immigration Centre in Kent is only meant to hold between 1,000 to 1,600 people, but the Home Secretary had about 4,000 crammed in there. And then what better way to help these poor people acclimatise to the UK? Quite like horrible, uncomfortable living conditions, endless disease, and a feeling that the authorities mainly wish you were dead. All they need now are some tips on how umbrellas are generally pointless, and they're basically British. And then, of course, you've got these lovely people like the man in Kent who threw petrol bombs at one of the facilities in Dover, who's not a terrorist, not according to the police or the government, and so we can only assume he, too, was trying to make all those asylum seekers who have suffered from horrific violence and war crimes feel a little bit more at home by continuing the atmosphere of fear. He was a lone wolf, even though wolves work in packs. And as Tory MP and who might present the one show if it happened in hell, Natalie Elphick, said that tensions have been high because people are sick of illegal immigration. Yes, well, I suppose it's very hard for her to campaign for safe routes so that refugees can get here legally when she's too busy defending sex offenders and breaching the ministerial code. Another one, she did it as well. But remember, it's definitely the war victims who are making things worse for us and not her now ex-husband going around assaulting people so that she could get a job. Natalie Elphick said she was shocked to hear it had happened in her constituency, despite her article in the Daily Mail earlier that day saying what a threat to the country refugees are. It's amazing she hasn't been hospitalised by a swing that she pushed, expecting it to just hover in the air afterwards forever. According to Border Force officials, the big issue is that our massively broken immigration system is a huge draw to people who have no choice but to escape their homes in order to stay alive, because it means it can take six to eight years for them to get processed. I mean, what better tourist advert for Britain, right? Have you barely avoided the Taliban even though your family didn't? Well, risk your life on a dinghy to the UK and we'll make it all okay by shoving you next to 4,000 other people in some inadequate disease-ridden housing for nearly a decade. It's like centre parks if it was run by an authoritarian regime, which you know all about, right? So you'll feel right at home. There are free petrol bombings every Saturday followed by a disco. When addressing Parliament about overcrowding at Manston, Bravman said the immigration system is broken and when she became Home Secretary, she was shocked at how much money is being spent on asylum hotels, which shows just how little attention she's paid to any of the votes she took that approved of it. Bravman insisted she never blocked hotels, which probably means she did all her hugest shits elsewhere. She also warned there's an invasion on our southern coast, which is just stoking fears, horrific language, but it probably also means the Home Secretary is terrified because some children in a boat could easily do her job far better than she could. But apart from all those poor people who are actually getting hurt due to a really, really horrendous immigration system that Suella Bravman is in charge of, who is Bravman's total inability to do her job and dreams that you'd usually only see explained to a psychiatrist by a serial killer before they escaped in a film hurting? Who is it hurting? Exactly. Honestly, you and your picky bloody facts, I can tell what kind of a person you are, right life and soul of the party. It turns out, Braverman, who it's worth saying again is in charge of national security as Home Secretary, only sent six work emails from her personal email account. But she says none of them contained any secrets and that can no doubt be confirmed by the people she sent them to and the five friends they sent them to and the five friends they sent them to. 
I mean, I often complain that there's not enough transparency with this Conservative government, so I suppose I should really be praising Suella Braverman that she's been making sure everyone knows what's going on in her department by directly emailing all the citizens in the country. And that's why she's getting to keep her job. Well, at least until later in the week when she'll no doubt email her resignation letter to several members of the North Korean government by accident first. Maybe it's just best to have the biggest threat to the country right there in the Home Office where all the staff can monitor her whereabouts at all times. It's not just Leaky Sue that's been, um, leaking though. It was revealed that Liz Truss's personal phone was hacked by spies believed to have been working for Russia while she was Foreign Secretary. Though, I'm sure for those poor espionage agents, it just meant they had to waste weeks and weeks trawling through millions of selfies of Truss trying to look like Margaret Thatcher, shopping lists full of cheese, the FET app and failed searches for recipes to try and grow a pie. The news about it was suppressed at the time, supposedly by then just a vague whiff of a Prime Minister and insides of an old chicken nugget that fell on the carpet, Boris Johnson. But he would have been on his 13th or 14th holiday at the time, so I'm not entirely sure he'd have been around. So it sounds it's more likely down to current Cabinet Secretary and what if Will McKenzie was dragged behind a truck for several days, Simon Case. Which is weird, really, as he's always seemed so full of integrity and honesty, you know, whether it was while having to step down from an investigation into Partygate, because it turned out he attended most of the parties, or when he was defending the last, last Home Secretary and woman sharks avoid Pretty Patel against claims of bullying. He's clearly on the side of proper conduct, you know, like a thorn. It's funny how Boris Johnson is seen as an ally of Ukraine, but quite happily hid all the news that his foreign secretary had let Russian spies potentially get details of aid during the war straight from her phone. Though I suppose it's very unlikely intelligence of any kind was in there. And I suppose it was this trust's personal phone. I mean, who sends work things from their personal accounts? What kind of moron would do that? Oh yeah, the current home secretary. Maybe there's just no need for national security when the UN Climate Council has said if we don't reverse the present trend, we will be doomed which is the excuse I'm going to use for not buying anyone Christmas presents. The UN have actually said that phrase about our climate situation quite a lot of times now, but it turns out being doomed is still preferable to many people than actually having to keep living through this shit state of affairs. Maybe it's that dodging a tsunami would bring the sort of excitement in life they don't usually get trawling through Netflix for hours to be enlightened by the existence of shows they think sound truly awful. I'm not really sure. But it doesn't help that with the COP27 conference at the end of the week, neither the UK's monarch nor prime minister are attending. For the king and real-time erosion cam, Charles, he was told not to go by Liz Truss, and as we know, she's still got all the authority, so instead he's hosting his own reception with business leaders, politicians and campaigners, which is going to take the fight against climate change by meaning all of them will have to take two flights now to the UK and then Egypt. And Rishi Sunak isn't attending COP27 because he has pressing domestic commitments, you know, like working out which of his 12 homes they've left the family dog in. Some of his campaign donations to become leader were from donors with links to fossil fuel companies, but maybe that's just because when he said his government would protect the most vulnerable, he meant the energy sources that were becoming extinct. It's very clear whose side Sunak is on in this scary fight, or why else would he put Therese Kofi in DEFRA, a woman who's always going to side with fossil fuels because she's 99% made of them. Shell announced a more than doubling in profits last week, even though their tagline is ready for cleaner energy, so I guess they're hoping to keep the country warm using the heat generated by people's rage. The company have actually asked for a windfall tax, but the Prime Minister apparently put one in already as Chancellor, which he didn't, and it doesn't really work. So what the government say their plan now is, is to give incentives to companies like Shell. I'm not really sure to do what, but at the moment it just looks like they're going to let enough people die from the cold because they can't afford their heating, and then in several million years they could be dug up and used as fossil fuel too, so maybe it's a future investment. But Sunak put tackling climate change as part of his weirdly robotic speech, you know, like Siri had gone rogue, and he's brought back the ban on fracking, and that's because there's 
still no evidence that it's not dangerous, whereas there's tons of evidence Suella Bravman and Gavin Williamson are dangerous, so you know they were qualified to return. There is a chance, though, that Sunak could change his mind and attend COP27 if sufficient progress is made on exactly how many of the UK's public services are going to be butchered even more. Councils have been told to make more cuts already, with several stopping free meal vouchers for kids during holiday time, and there's been no commitment on the government keeping the triple lock pension either. So, who exactly does Rishi Sunak think is the most vulnerable that need protecting? Or as a multi-millionaire, does he just mean all of those with not quite as much cash as him, and he's now going to spend his days trying to raise money for the monarchy? The Prime Minister put out a video on the official government Twitter that contained many party campaign references, meaning it shouldn't have been paid for by public money. While the content was as engaging as stubbing your toe, the music was a stock track that sounded disturbingly like that of rock and roll by greasy pedo Gary Glitter. The government had to deny that it was his track, but I mean, it would have fitted if it was a Glitter track, right? Especially as the Conservatives and him have the shared values of enjoying ruining children's lives. Oh, and shit awful hair. I've seen some political dickheads say that since Rishi Sunak became PM, that the grown-ups are in charge again. If that's true, then we're clearly at that moment when kids realise their parents are also idiots, just even bigger ones. In other news, Foreign Secretary James Cleverly urged LGBT football fans to be respectful of Qatar if they visit for the World Cup. It's illegal to be gay there, but Cleverly said if you're a visitor to a nation, you have to show respect to that culture, which if that is what he believes, then he really should have a word with the British Empire. In Northern Ireland, the DUP have refused to form a power-sharing agreement with Sinn Féin, missing the deadline to create the Assembly, meaning another election will have to be held and the country is again without a government. But, you know, not in a good way. Sinn Féin have accused the DUP of causing a political limbo, which sounds about right as they have managed to lower the bar in Northern Ireland politics for quite some years now. The Northern Ireland Secretary, Chris Heaton-Harris, who looks like he's only ever had a photo taken using the eyes and mouth filter, has said he will call an election, which the parties don't want, but he hasn't set a date yet. And that's going to really punish the DUP for their behaviour, as they may have to last-minute cancel loads of going around and tutting at people. And some actually good news, oh my goodness, as in Brazil, South American Brian Cox impersonator, the actor not the other one, and socialist Lula da Silva beat Emperor Palpatine clone and climate change and Covid-denying misogynistic homophobic far-right populist loon Jair Bolsonaro to become the new Brazilian president. Despite Bolsonaro's allies threatening voters and putting up roadblocks to stop them voting, Lula took a 1% lead, proving just how much people must have fucking hated that creepy undead caretaker that's no longer allowed near schools. Probably. Lula da Silva was president in 2003 and 2006 already, so it turns out that a third booster shot was what was needed to stop Bolsonaro spreading further, and it's no doubt going to take him quite a while to come to terms with understanding that the people directly affected the climate. The new president was banned from running in 2018 as he'd been in prison for receiving a bribe, a conviction that was then annulled and overturned after 580 days. Lula said they tried to bury me alive and here I am, which is an absolutely amazing comeback, even though it sounds a bit like a zombie telling a story. Lawmakers close to Bolsonaro won a majority in Congress, meaning that Lula da Silva will have to fight for his policies, but he has called for peace and unity, like some sort of weird, actually decent human being who isn't a fascist. He's also vowed to help the Amazon, so I guess that means he's going to be the first world leader ever who also does part-time delivery driving. Yes, that is the joke I'm ending on. I'm aware of just how shit it is, and no, I don't care. I don't care you're having it. Oh, it's so nice to have some actually good news, isn't it? Even though Bolsonaro hasn't conceded defeat yet, I'm sure he's going to do something completely nuts, unhinged and Trump-like and call for, like, a riot on the National Congress building. But until then, until it goes really awful, it's great news. It's really good, especially for a socialist leader like Lula da Silva, who the Labour Party would probably kick out because, you know, he liked to tweet by the Green Party or something. Um... 
how are you good halloween for my costume i wore a t-shirt which was terrifying because it was the end of october and it should not have been that warm Someone replied to me tweeting uh, that joke, uh, that joke that's filled with fear, um, with, oh, but it's sometimes warm in October. Yeah, sure, sure it is. If you're in Death Valley, uh, my memories of Halloween were always of being just far too cold in a shit costume before then having to wrap up in all of the clothes for bonfire night, not of it being 23 degrees and doing fireworks on the beach. Um... Look, I'm going to shut up very quickly. It's a very long interview this week, but it's a good one. So, uh, you know the drill, which is why you're DIY experts. Thank you for listening. Thanks for the Kofi and Patreon donations. And, you know, please do those more if you can. KO-FI.com forward slash Bro. Uh, join the Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Bro if you can afford to. Um, and thanks for slowing down when there was that cat in the road. That's just kindness. And I think that's it. Uh, so this week I'm talking to very funny comedian and environmental researcher Matt Winning. And it's such a good chat that I just want you to dive into it face first. Here you go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Isn't it irritating all these protesters who just keep throwing soup at paintings or blocking roads all because they don't want the planet to die and humanity to become extinct? I mean, haven't they seen the last few years or ever logged onto social media? If they had, they'd know that actually a swift end is probably what's called for instead of, you know, mildly inconveniencing someone for a fraction of their existence in order to highlight that we should do something to make sure that Earth doesn't become a galactic pizza oven. Yes, this is how I deal with my constant fear about the ever-warming state of the planet, just endlessly pumped up by energy companies and billionaires, assuming that when it all kicks off, they'll just be able to pay off a tsunami like they do everything else, and it'll be fine. It's very clear the planet is now going to warm to a not great level, and the UN have warned that unless we do something right now, it'll be an even not greater level, so yes, it's the perfect time for COP27 to happen, and all the world's leaders to get together and say they'll do something about it in several years' time, when they won't have to do anything about it, as it will all be on fire. Sorry, not all the world leaders. Rishi Sunak has really important things to do, you know, uh, like sort of swim in his swimming pool of coins. Uh, one of his 12 swimming pools. Um, from my point of view, where I spend half of my lifetime rinsing out plastic containers so the council can pretend to recycle them but then dump them in a river in Turkey, it all feels pretty bleak. But is it? 
because loads of good things are also happening, such as Lula's win in Brazil, meaning deforestation of the Amazon rainforest should now drop by 90%. That's incredible. Lots of brilliant initiatives are taking place. Lots of protesters are highlighting the issues and lots and lots of people are more committed to doing something about it than ever before. Just not, you know, the British government. Are we doomed to a 2.5 degrees Celsius rise across the planet because of inaction? Or are we just doomed to things being shit but not mega shit with the climate so we can live through all the other shit things instead? Sorry, I mean, are there some reasons to be positive? Yes, this week it's back to the ever cheery subject of climate change. And so I am talking to someone who is masterful at explaining it in a way that doesn't just make me spend days trying to work out how to live on the moon. Dr. Matt Winning is an environmental researcher and also a comedian who manages to be funny about the planetary crisis that we face. No, I have no idea how either, but he is very, very good at it. Matt's book Hot Mess is an informative but also funny and reassuring read and his Radio 4 show Net Zero, A Very British Problem, is exactly the sort of conversation we need to be having about what next. I first met Matt many moons ago in the world of comedy and it was so great to ask him to do this year's annual chat dealing with my anxiety about it all. It is a long talk because there is a lot to talk about and it was recorded two weeks ago, um, but I don't think anything he talked about is now out of date at all, upsettingly. Uh, Also, at the beginning of every time Matt starts talking, the sound goes a little bit funny for like a sentence and then it fixes itself. I don't know why it does that. Please don't ask me. Please don't write in. Stop it. Um, And Matt also had a bit of a cold and I think I've edited out all his coughs, but I may have missed a few. Uh, Anyway, I'm very pleased to have got this chat and I hope you find it as enlightening as I did. Here is Matt. Hit record again. Let's let's do it. And if you suddenly sound like you disappear, we'll we'll have to. There we go. How's that now? Lovely, excellent. Right. In which case, uh, let, let's give it a go. Uh, Matt, I've I've got to prefix this conversation by feeling like every time I have a chat with someone about climate change, I just mainly want to go. Why aren't we just stopping doing all of the things that are making it happen? <laughs> because I find it, un- I just I can't fathom why we're not just sorting this out. Um, but I'll start by you know it feels to me that a lot of a lot of the world has woken up to the dangers of climate change and i'm saying you know generalizing here we're not talking about jacob Rees mogg or most of america but the rest of the rest of the world um you know and obviously we've had a lot of terrifying weather events that have taken place which which make it quite sort of stark and real is the biggest hurdle now uh, to kind of reaching net zero is it the fossil fuel industry and the fact they just keep happening or is it that we just have to make such massive changes to our lives uh, to get there? Good question. Um, I'd say, that, I mean, I, everybody has to make changes is the problem. So the, what you're talking about there is either the fossil fuel industry has to change or is it that lots of people have to change? And the answer is both. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so... Well, but is there? So, oh, oh, it was more. Which ones? Which ones the big? Which ones the biggest? Which one's the biggest hurdle? I think I, I, that I don't know. Um, they both have to change at a rate of like a pace of change that nobody is particularly comfortable with because we've not really done it before. Um, but I mean, I'd say it's more. Yeah, so and this is a terrible way to start an interview by me sort of pausing and think deliberating about the an answer. I don't think you can say it's one thing that's worse. I mean, for the fossil fuel industry um, is the supply side, right? And 
everyone else in the entire world, from everybody's gran to the plastic Lego toy. Well, it depends. Lego, I think, have stopped making it out of uh, oil. But other, you know, everything in the world that everyone does is um, consuming fossil fuels. Um, so is is it whose responsibility is that to sort out? And really, it's sort of kind of everybody's because it requires everyone to be on board with the change, or at least enough to be on board with the change for every side to kind of start doing their bit. And everybody always points at someone else is the problem. And that's why this has taken so long to sort out. Because, you know, government says, well, people don't want it, so we're not going to do it. And the people go, it should be the governments and the companies that are doing it. So they need to get their fingers out. And then the companies go, well, there's no demand from people for doing it. And governments need to tell us what to do. And there's just this sort of circle jerk of people not, uh, you know, wanting to to uh, to take responsibility and and to act and really what actually has to happen is all of you know society governments companies uh, especially fossil fuel companies all need to take responsibility and put in place some sort of you know plan of change and i think it's all easier to do that if you are a multi-billion dollar industry than it is if you are someone living in a council house uh, in the UK. So, you know, the onus should be on those who have the means and the ability to change first. And that's that goes for countries as well, you know. It needs to be the richer countries that are able to do this, that have invested in technologies and stuff that need to move first and kind of take responsibility. So, yeah, it's really, it's really a sort of responsibility question, I think. Um, and what's standing in the way of that? I don't know. Human nature, vested interests, money, systems, and also, I think a sort of negativity around change rather than a positivity around it that that needs to come across more, um, because you know it, it is an opportunity. We all complain about the world, but there is an opportunity here to create a nicer, better, cleaner, fairer world using climate change. And um, I think that needs to be uh, put across better by different people. So I, I suppose it is that thing of, you know, you know, I'm very much thinking, and we'll talk a bit more about the energy crisis later, but that, you know, this this winter, I would love to use less energy. That's something I would like to do anyway, <laughs> really, yeah. because I'm aware of how bad it is. But when it's at the expense of being absolutely freezing and you've got a kid and you can't really have the heating low, you know, and it, you, when you're sort of forced into it, it's not how you want to be doing it. And it's, it, all these things need to be facilitated if there was an easy change to it being renewable because it'd be facilitated by the government, by big companies that have changed their ways. That's that's easy. And in the same way, you know, people are worried about losing jobs because they work in those industries. If there was another job to go yeah. to, it's not they're not so desperate to the previous job that they wouldn't go to a nicer one that's better for the planet. But I suppose it all has to be, it, you know, we need those companies, that those governments to facilitate it for us. For exactly. it to, so to that, and that's it. the idea of a transition. And that's the idea that's been put forward by, by our groups and, uh, and sort of language uh, used in, in the climate movement and stuff about a just transition. Um, and it, it's language that's come out before, I think from, from the seventies, uh, 
uh, unions in the in the US. But the idea is basically just like we have to facilitate this massive change. It's a massive change, and it, to make it fair, it needs some level of coordination. And people can't. But the, the conversation has always been a <clears throat> that it's about people and individuals and that sort of thing. I think a lot of that's because it's easier to communicate that. It's easier to do a news story about some people because it, it's more interesting to us, uh, you know, to find out, you know, someone that's done something good for the planet or whatever, rather than hearing about, you know, a nameless company that's done something that actually the impact is, you know, <laughs> 10,000 times the impact of one person doing one thing. But that nice one you know, individual story often makes for good media um, and therefore you, we end up with lots of stories about climate change that are at the individual level and and then it's sort of become this thing that that we as individuals are expected to make change. It's also very much seen as, again, even still at this moment in time, people talk about it as like, you know, being green and an environmental movement and stuff and uh, you know, I personally um, have never really considered myself an environmentalist or green as such. I'm f the reason that I got into it was more of a, I guess, of an equity, humanitarian reasons, you know, thinking about, well, people are impacted by this and it's not sort of like... You know, I, I I completely get the idea of of uh, protecting nature and the things that we like and people, you know, love animals and all that sort of stuff. But that's it's almost framed in that way when, in actual fact, we're talking about you know global migration and the displacement of people from their homes. You know, the, the people are at the centre of this, but often it feels like it's not communicated in a way. The solutions are often communicated in a way where people are at the centre of it, when in actual fact, the more important solutions are at a much larger scale. But the impacts are often communicated in a way that are uh, sort of everybody sort of bound together and not humanised as much. You know, I, I feel like humans aren't necessarily put at the centre. It's often sheets of ice and polar bears and things that, people don't really relate to in their day-to-day -day lives. And so often, I don't know, I just think maybe the messaging has been kind of backwards just because of the way it's created. And yeah, a lot of people have uh, said this more eloquently than me or... or... <laughs> no, no, it's, but I, I feel like, because, you know, I suppose one of my, my concerns always is, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw myself into the... Uh, just show how selfish I am, really. Um, I'll give you my opinions, but uh, but like I do, I I do, I do rinse every bit of plastic and put it in the recycling, and I put all you know, and I do all the recycling. I try and turn lights off, but it's it is, you know, I think we've got a very good understanding of fairness, and it's particularly happening now with with us, you know, the idea of austerity coming back. When hang on a minute, the government have wasted all our money. Why have we got a you know shell out? And it's similar with sort of environmental, where you're seeing that you know these headlines that are like twelve companies are causing seventy percent of the world pollution or you know or shells getting all these profits for all its uh and and there might be north sea oil drilling and then you sort of think well 
why am I bothering? You know, why why couldn't I have one holiday a year when really it's so minimal uh, to you know for me to catch one flight compared to it? it and you know, it does it does almost. Uh, I do worry that 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 kind of um, narrative of it is our individual thing breeds a kind of. Uh, what's the word almost apathy yeah. because we think well what's the what's what, what's me doing this going to do if if ultimately it requires this big change f- from the big companies and governments yeah and i think it's a very easy route to go down that sort of apathetic uh response to it because it feels like you're so small it feels futile now I, the the response that i always have to that is that you need to be aware of the sphere of influence of what you can do. So you obviously you can only do what you can do, right? So you can't, you know, stay awake all night worrying about what the decisions of you know CEOs are necessarily going to make because you you can't directly influence that unless you decide you want to play the long game and. Uh, get into the fossil fuel industry very early and work in that to disrupt it or become a sleeper cell. I don't know. Um, <laughs> not not my plan, no, no. I have to say. It's a very long game. Good money in it, though, I imagine. Um, yes. Uh, but, uh, but what was I going to say? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, what we have to do is we have to sort of um, expand what we understand to be that individual climate action. So actually all those things like recycling your pots and, uh, you know, taking a holiday a year or whatever on a plane. They are part of it, but that's just the very personal individual actions that you can take. The other stuff is what do you do in your job? You know, what other parts of your life? Your life is a lot more than you in your own house. It's about your influence on other people. It's about your influence on where you work or the choices of jobs that you do if you're able to choose. It's about your communities. It's about, you know, wider things about, you know, becoming, um, whether it's activism, whether it's joining groups, you know, whatever it is, either end of the spectrum, whatever you feel comfortable with. But anyone that's working towards pushing it, you know, faster in the direction than it needs to go. And that could be community things. It could be, you know, Friends of the Earth or whatever, Extinction Rebellion. It could be any of these groups that you feel comfortable being part of. That all is individual action. All of that is stuff that you can do. But but the way that it's talked about and the way that it feels is that it's about washing out your yogurt pots. And 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 then and I don't think people understand the oh sorry, one that I missed there is your money. So what where where do, where do your savings go or whatever? You know, who do you bank with? Do they fund fossil fuel um uh fossil fuel uh, production and stuff like that? So th- there's a lot of stuff that we can do as individuals but we shouldn't focus too much on those sort of uh actions that are uh being perfect i guess that's the main thing perfection we don't need lots of people being perfect we need lots of people being imperfect but doing stuff you know that's what we need and so so, you know, by all means, keep doing the things that you want to do. But I think get an understanding of the scales of different things that you can do. So the big ones really at an individual level are flying, driving and what you eat. Beyond that, it's, you know, it's fine to do other things, 
But beyond those sort of three things, flying, driving, what you eat, as an individual, there's not a huge amount else you can do unless you can afford, you know, solar panels or whatever, or you uh, get a heat pump in your house or something like that. But again, these are quite big, expensive things. Um, yeah. yeah. So, sorry, so I sort of went off on a tangent there, but. No, 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 but it's it's good. It's it's interesting. I, I think that's a, a it's a really important thing to say that you, you're right. It's, you, your actions can make an impact as an individual action. Uh, you know, it, it, I think uh, just sort of depending on what you're doing with who you're aligning with, what you're how who else you're influencing. I think that is really important because I think I, definitely for me, and it's, it's what I wanted to sort of ask you about next. You know, we've got COP twenty seven coming up, and I, my memories of COP twenty six were that it was largely a failure and <laughs> that it wasn't very and uh they just sort of agreed to so you know have another pact uh and, and sort of delay everything happening and it is just i think very disheartening when you see all right but i'm doing these things and and you are not uh and you are the people who could be and and i wondered sort of you know with cop 27 taking place is you know am i being unfair to cop 26 and you know is uh, COP27 looking like it might be more positive or more progressive or anything at all? So the, the problem with working on climate change especially is that this the pace of change is inordinately slow. Um, and, and that is something that I think is really good when you get other people coming in and, you know, you've got youth activists and other things that have kind of come in a lot more over the last couple of years and they've all gone this is happening far too slowly why is why is it so slow and i guess people like me that have worked on this for you know over a decade or so get used to that and so there probably is an element of complacency for our side but we're often just like it's just really slow it just takes so long to do anything um and you know uh, the the sorts of things that were put in place these are always sort of like we're bringing things together and then we're going to push forward for something else in five years time or there is there is an awful lot of sort of targets or commitments that are further on and so i'd say cop 26 was a positive thing from those further on targets from those sort of like the direction of travel is we're heading in a better direction, but you know, none of it's happening at the pace that makes you feel sort of like, Oh, that's good. We're oh, we're ahead of where we need to be. It's always, we're nowhere near where we need to be. And, uh, you know, that sh- people rightly want to see more happening in the short run. And, and that, yeah, just doesn't really happen an awful lot, especially with these big UN meetings. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of positive change in the in the decade that I've worked or in a bit that I've worked on this. Things that I didn't know would ever happen or what that couldn't have necessarily foreseen. So there are good things, but you almost have to, you know. It's not happening every year. There's not always good things happening. It's often it takes a while and then things kind of begin to speed up. Um, And that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping things begin to snowball with what's been put in place. But I still don't think anything's happening um, at the rate of change that, you know, no government's really doing things, you know, taking this 
properly seriously. Some are taking it more seriously than others. Company, some companies are taking it much more seriously than others. Um, and but it's it's um, it's a yeah, it's a really tricky thing to keep yourself motivated and positive about all the time because it, it's sort of like this massive slow moving juggernaut. Um, I think what what we'll see this year. Because last year, obviously, it was in the UK, so it was a very Western-focused COP, I think. Um, I think it'll be different this year, but I don't know exactly. It's in Egypt, so it's in Africa, which is obviously the continent that is pretty much the, you know, uh, coalface of climate impacts. so I think the, the the discourse will be a bit different this year. I think it will be hopefully more focused on those countries and focused on helping those countries. You know, a lot of these countries, and I can't, um, I can't quote anything off the top of my head because one of my colleagues had just written a paper about it. Um, but a lot of the, these countries are spending inordinate sums of GDP already on just adapting to the climate change that is already happening. So how can you expect a lot of, especially sub-Saharan African countries, to grow, to get out of poverty, when they're essentially now having a hand tied behind their back by making the conditions that they're trying to, you know, grow in um, difficult? So, So the focus for these countries is not on how do we stop climate change happening? The focus for them is it's it's fucking happening, and we need some help. You know that, and that's the the reality of it. Um, so I think it will be more focused on that aspect than the last one, which the last one's very much. You know, how do we stop this? Because it's easy from our kind of Western perspectives to be like, well, we're impacted by it a bit already, and sure, there's. The UK's gone over 40 degrees for the first time and it's oh, it is killing people already in the UK or or, or, or and, and disrupting our lives. But the scale of it is nowhere near the scale of where it's happening elsewhere in the world. And those countries where it is happening, they're just like, well, we need help. We need help now. And so that's part of the conversation yeah. that I don't think we have a lot here if you know what i mean it's easy for us to be like how bad's it gonna get and how worried are we when you know lots of people are already just like oh it's bad here and you know that, i mean that feels like such a necessary thing for us to be aware i mean you know there's been so much footage of places that have been horribly flooded or, or horrendous heat waves that have been in other parts of the world and i don't think it resonates quite here i mean you know when we had horrible like heat waves here the chair that i'm sitting on talking to you basically melted but but that was the worst you know it, it doesn't quite have the same impact and it's it, but i do i have big memories of cop 26 i think it was of the barbadian prime minister talking about the the effects of the the storms and how dangerous it was and then i think boris johnson went on after us and just talked rubbish before then not going not meeting any of the targets you know and it's quite yep. depressing to see people going, no, no, we're actually, we're losing people are losing lives all the time, while in the UK we're then sort of going, oh, we'll still drill into the North Sea with a whole load of new contracts. Um, there's a complete sort of disconnect there, there. and and 
Oh, sorry, no, 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 you go. I, I was just going to say, you know, we, we because I think the, the problem, you know, one of the big problems we had last year was it was in the UK, and then the UK have absolutely done nothing. <laughs> and in fact, I'd say it got worse uh, between Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. I mean, who knows where uh, and what these policies will be like by the time this episode comes out. And, <laughs> and this is actually hear this. But, you know, at the moment, we've got new contracts for North Sea oil. There's proposals for fracking again, um, which I know there's there's big opposition to. So whether or not it happens, we'll see. But, you know, how how, how damaging? Obviously, all of those things are very, very damaging to the environment. But how damaging are they to the movement to tackle climate change? Because, as I said, we, we held the COP26 last year and we're supposedly in tune with all these other countries in the world where, they, where they're seeing the effects of this. But... In in reality, none of our actions are 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 going along with with what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. It's you know the UK's made progress, uh, mostly down to luck, but but we have made progress. <laughs> Governments will like to take responsibility, and there's been good things. You know, the UK government uh, brought in a thing, contracts for difference, which has really helped, uh, like a, a policy that helped with offshore wind in the UK which has been really positive. So genuinely, like, there's kudos there for helping with that. At the same time, they banned onshore wind because a handful of people don't like onshore wind, the site of onshore wind farms. And David Cameron's government cut spending on energy efficiency measures, which would have retrofitted millions of homes, which would now be saving us, you know, loads of carbon, loads of money. And, you know, we wouldn't be using the amount of gas that we're currently using in the UK. So they've done some good stuff. They've done a lot of not so good stuff. Um, but our emissions have kept coming down. And we've kind of got to a place where at the end, you know, as you say, 20, it was supposed to be 2020, it then went into 2021 for COP26. And the UK could genuinely say, you know, we're not perfect and there's a lot to be done, but we are you know, leading the way in, in, in a sort of uh, on mitigating climate change. And as you say, those other things, fracking and uh, more, you know, offshore oil and gas, are complete backward steps that are completely at odds with those commitments, with that role. And also, it's not the future. It's not the future direction of travel. Everything is pointing away from those things especially right now, especially with gas prices, volatility, doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So so from a market perspective, it doesn't make sense. And from a climate perspective, it doesn't make sense. And from a role as a, you know, a leader, all the hard work we've done, it potentially does undermine that. It potentially says, oh, we don't actually care about this. Um I just so, so it, it, it it really is quite baffling, um, given the resources that we have, given the potential to to kind of move away properly from from oil and gas um, in the UK, and to show that it's possible. You know, I think France and I think Spain. I can't remember if it's twenty forty for both of them. I think France is twenty forty. They've said they'll no longer produce any. You know, everything has to be wound down by 2040 um, in terms of oil and gas production. So no more oil and gas production um, by by that year. The UK, I think one study that came out said we need to have ended oil and gas production by 
2034. So mid 2030s is when it needs to it needs to go to zero, you know, to meet our targets. <clears throat> um, so somewhere between there, the mid 2030s to 2040, you need no more. And that's not like adding anymore. It needs to be wound down to zero. So, um, you know, adding stuff now, you know, it doesn't make any sense. If you're going to add something, you're going to want it to exist for another 20 to 30 years. So unless the UK then, you know, absolutely commits to, <coughs> sorry, the UK commits to, I don't know, using gas for electricity that it can then capture or something, you know, some way of being uh, viable uh, to do in tandem with our climate targets, which is pretty much impossible, then it just doesn't make any sense. Like, it, it, you know, it doesn't make sense from these types of commitments, from what the science is showing that we need to be at, um, you know, on, on our path to net zero. So no, it's absolutely not commensurate with uh, the climate movement, with what the science around the you know the the, the legal t targets that the government has set. Um, yeah, so I you know I, I I don't think it could be any clearer that these are uh, you know the it's the wrong direction. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, and and what because a lot of the energy crisis we're having now, or sort of as I read, um, is is of our own making. I say of our own, obviously not not mine or yours. I, mean, I don't know how involved you. Are. <laughs> I didn't do it, um, but yeah, but you know, as you mentioned, retrofitting all these all these homes could have been insulated better. We could have had the hydro power plant that got scrapped a few years ago. You know, all these different things that haven't happened would have helped the situation that we're in Absolutely. now. Is it now to I mean, you know, I don't want to use the phrase too late, but are, are there now, do we now have to do completely different things to make our energy use efficient and green and affordable for the future because we haven't done things in, in no, the past? The problem is, so just as an example of homes and heating, because right now it's what we're talking, it's October, it's getting cold. The UK housing stock loses heat three times faster than the European average. So our houses are atrocious on average, right? So we're just waste we're just wasting energy, causing unnecessary emissions, wasting money. Um and what we now need to do is a rate of change on that. So the, the things are mostly the same um that we need to do. Now the cost the so, so if we stick with that for a minute, I'll come to a few other examples. But on that, this we need to still do the same thing that we we're talking about, over, you know, ten years ago, which is firstly insulate homes, and then change to something else. And and the debate about that has been essentially whether we go with uh, electric uh, heat pumps, whether that's air source or ground source heat pumps, or whether we go to some sort of hydrogen gas grid. Now, it looks like uh, certainly all the science pretty much tells us that the most efficient way to go is to, to go with the heat pumps, which means you have to rip out everybody's boilers around the country and replace them with these other things, 
right, which run off of electricity, which can then be green because you just get more renewables to electrify everything. So basically, our heating becomes uh, electric, our cars become electric, and our, well, our electricity stays electric. Uh, it just has to increase a lot and become much more, uh, you know, greener, essentially. Um and all of that's absolutely feasible uh, and absolutely possible. But the, the the rate of change, for instance, I think at the the current rate of change that we to to achieve net uh, net zero heat. So specifically on our installation of uh, heat pumps, it would take us six hundred years to meet our net zero target. Wow! Um, and we need to do it in what twenty eight. So the the rate is nowhere near commensurate with that, especially because it's so far behind. So at least with wind and you know uh, and solar and stuff, there has been a, a build up that we're now producing quite a lot of that uh, in the UK for for electricity needs. But we needed to start this other stuff in our homes a long time ago, just to make the rate of change a lot more feasible. Um, and now we need you know, we just don't have this the skills really there that so that's a massive um what would you call it roadblock or you know what's the word for when you're, you're trying to squeeze through a point i, I can't remember wow this is terrible from an academic i'm supposed to be good that roadblock was a good one yeah yeah i i i went with roadblock. But you get what i mean like yeah. <laughs> it, it's it's a somebody will somebody will tweet us with what the actual word is this is yeah, i'm sure. gonna blame the yeah. fact that i've just put my son to bed and that i can't think anymore because i'm a, a, pa- a parent of a young child um yeah so essentially um we need lots of people we need to be ripping out you know tens of thousands of boilers a week and replacing them with heat pumps and we're not doing that and there's not the people to do that and it's not set up to do that so so I don't I just I don't know how it's gonna happen in certain areas. I think it's a lot easier to see how that will happen with um heavy industry, for instance. So I think the direction of how we produce steel, for instance, is gonna change in the UK, uh, globally and, and in the UK. And I think that there's <clears throat> there's technologies and there's sort of ways of you know, putting policies in place uh, so that we do start producing green steel or green cement. And I think that but that does need quite a bit of policy help. I think on the vehicles with transport, electric vehicles will almost happen roughly by itself and it will actually be a lot cheaper for people to run those, um, you know, in a decade or so and much, much greener. So... Some of it will happen by itself, but you know, for me, those examples are the difficult things are like, you know, essentially heating in the UK. People aren't all going to just change their boilers by themselves. You know, it's not going to happen by itself. It needs a coordinated plan to change the entire how twenty four million homes in the UK are heated, and, and that's that's yeah. not really there yet. And you know, and food to some extent is the, the same. Um, and agriculture needs a plan. It needs a plan because it won't happen by itself. Um, but some things. The good news is that some things will happen by themselves, like 
renewables becoming so cheap that essentially they just become the, the standard technology or electric vehicles becoming you know cheaper and better they become the standard tech that's so, so 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 some of it will happen and that's great and you know it's needed some government uh, interventions to speed them up then we can we can always make that faster if we want but but some things just otherwise you know aren't going to happen unless there's sort of a much more coordinated uh, approach to it yeah, I, I, one of the things that always sort of baffles me is, you know, were there a coordinated approach? The amount of jobs that would create for, for fitting new, you know, fitting in the electric heat pumps. It's it's so that you'd get the whole economy kicks up. There's a whole financial side that makes sense it, to it. It's an well investment. As, uh, so you invest in these things. Yeah. And, and I think the estimates are something like maybe 300 to 400,000 jobs. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's bonkers. so. It's an enormous, it's, enormous, yeah. but you have to view, you have to commit to it. And the problem is that you do need to you need the commitment, and you need the upfront investment. And it's not a cost because all of this pays back because you do yeah. something that improves all of our lives in the long run. Um, but you just need to, and and that's the difficulty just now there's always something else happening. COVID happened. So, you know, it's fine. We're just going to borrow for that because that's an emergency that we had to borrow for. But the cost of solving climate change, I can't remember. In fact, it's in the Radio 4 show. So in the last episode of the Radio 4 show, I made sure I got that stat in there. I can't remember off the top of my head. But the amount that climate change, I think it's the amount that climate change, uh, you know, achieving net zero in the UK would cost for investment wise. Um, will be less over 30 years than COVID was over two years. Yeah. So, the you know, that that investment, that the money that you have to spend up front is going to be, you know, less over 30 years than COVID, what we had to spend on, on COVID over two years. And and it is an emergency this, in the same way that COVID is an emergency, but it's just not treated as such. You know, it's not because of the 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 way that the problem exists in that it's much more, it's not happening right now. We, you know, we can't see it. We're not getting necessarily getting out yeah. for it. It just sort of feels like it's permeating in the background of our lives all the time, slowly getting work. You know, it's a boiling frog thing. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, that thing as well of just climate change will cost so much. But you, you see all the footage of places being flooded or destroyed by tornadoes. That is an <laughs> unbelievable cost uh, that that people have to do, you know, to. So any investment that, yeah. put, that, that offsets that is surely money saving. And you know, not that that's, you know, I always sort of feel sad that that's what you have to look at. But thinking about how how the people in charge. Well, that's, do. That's and, um, and as you see, yes, I mean, I think the OBR. And that's the you know we're talking about the the same OBR that's you know we're dealing with with uh, the budgets and stuff coming out at the moment. They they've already yeah. come out and said it, it would cost much less to solve this than it will yeah. to do nothing. You know to do nothing. It's it's the scales are nowhere near comparable. But but it still gets kind of made. It comes across in the media. It comes across that oh it's quite it's going to be too much. It's going to cost too much or whatever. And it's it's not. It's not you, it only looks like big numbers because you're comparing it to doing nothing and the world staying the same. Yeah. That is not at all the case. Yeah, anyway. 
is uh, I've, I've, I've raised, <coughs> next question I wanted to ask you is quite a big question, so I'm aware that you can just sort of <laughs> deal with this how you like. But you know, one one of my uh, concerns and one of the things I keep reading about is how we are, you know, we're very focused on energy measures right now, which is massively important and and uh, sort of I understand one of the biggest sort of polluting factors, but. Are we focusing too much on that element of climate change when there's also sort of animal extinction, deforestation, plastics? You know, are those being ignored because we're focusing on on too much of of one area of climate change? I understand they're all inextricably, you know, linked. Um, but is there a concern that we're kind of focusing on one area too much? Yeah, I mean, you, you definitely have to keep all things in mind. But there are people, there's always someone working on one thing um you know plastic definitely became something that people became much more aware of um a few years ago and that's it's very easy to remember plastic stuff because it's you see it you see plastic pollution or you you know it's something that's a lot more visual to us than climate change um but yeah elements of deforestation deforestation absolutely is massive animal agriculture uh is contributes an awful lot um i think in 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 total it's something like uh a quarter of global emissions but i think maybe 10 percent of that is energy is actually the energy for it so you're talking about maybe 16 percent or something i can't remember the exact number but you know agriculture is pretty massive um and everything needs to be dealt with but i would say on the whole it is energy, you know, it, it is the main thing. Most of global emissions come from how we use, uh, well, not use, how we produce energy, sorry, and, and and the amount of energy that we use. So we definitely could try to use less energy. Um, and I think, you know, that requires uh, people to be quite brave uh, and put in measures that will, you know, that, that will, will achieve that. I don't know how likely that necessarily always is. Um, but yeah, we absolutely need to, I think the focus on energy is fine, is, is my answer to your question. Don't worry about it. I think it's fine. I think that's where <laughs> we need to be focusing. But there are other aspects that you we always need to keep in mind. And I think everyone's always got their thing that they think's the most important uh, thing someone will reply to everything saying ah but what about this we should really look at that and I've heard every every answer under the sun on that the answer is all of it um, so if you're looking at something you're not looking in the wrong place that's good well that's I think that's I think that's good to know and I, you know and, and the, the the other thing I wanted to ask you I suppose you know is uh, possibly an even bigger question but how how are you how do you feel about where things are heading as someone who uh, you know, as you said, have been working in it and, and talks about it for over a decade now. Are you more or less positive about the state of the planet you were, say, a, a year ago? Um, and I just want to sort of to add to this. I, I saw, I think it was the the climate activist Michaela Loach, oh, yeah. who I think is very really good, and she had posted a blog to somebody saying it's it's not too late when it's our planet. Stop saying it's too late because it's our planet and and things are always progressing and we've got to stop being bleak about it because yeah. even though things have changed you can still stop them from being too awful absolutely you know? um i mean that's one reason that i do comedy about this and i know you wouldn't tell that i do comedy about this from the conversation that we've had but i do i do go out and write 
you know, show, do shows and I've written a book and stuff that is very comedy focused because I think we do need to make it a conversation that people are happy to have and that don't they don't want to shut down immediately because it's too depressing or too scary. So the way we communicate it is important um, and the way we talk about it is important. Now, it is bad that that isn't, you know, you have to say that, but then you have to be able to kind of, deal with that you have to you know feel comfortable enough in yourself to take take that on and then sit with it and go okay right but we still have to keep going because you know people keep going through the point that arrows makes people keep going through everything you know whether it is wars right now or whether it's you know the second world war or whether it's the pandemic you know humanity as a whole keeps going but that doesn't but but you can play quite a central role you know you can do your bit in the sense that as i said earlier there's a lot that you can do that's a lot more than just you know you know rinsing out your recycling or whatever there's there's a lot that we can do to really push this forward to get involved properly in it if we if we care about it so i think it's about kind of being open um to those feelings shall we say you know to sort of actually take it on board and be like okay this is you know happening um and to find ways of, of of talking about it to people and and not shutting it down or not having it as this thing that's just happening in the future or just happening to someone else, it is happening to you. You will not escape this, um, and so it's important that for you that you play some role in in in, in trying to help, um, yeah, help in whatever way you can. Um, from a personal point of view. You know, I, I always kind of describe it as um, it, it, well, two, two examples. One is that I had to get five fillings this year. And oh, man. most of that, but that was my denial, mostly because I think it was during COVID and having a baby that I thought I was brushing my teeth and that I sort of was like, it doesn't really matter if I don't brush my teeth. It's probably going to be fine. Nothing will be that bad. It'll be okay. Um, And then all of a sudden you go to the dentist and they're like, yeah, this is awful and things are really bad. And I've had my head in the sand thinking it probably wouldn't be that bad. And that's essentially, if I can't look after my teeth, I'm not that surprised that we can't look after the planet. You know, I'm I'm a man of science. I should know these things, but this sort of there's still human. I'm still a human. I still sort of go, yeah, it might be fine. It will probably be okay. And so, overall, how I sort of view our response to climate change, it's it's like crap. We're cramming for the the exam at the last minute, right? So instead of actually studying properly to solve this, you know, thirty years ago was is like, I don't know three weeks before the exam, studying for it. Today, we're now a few hours before the exam and we've really not helped ourselves at all. We've read nothing on it. We've barely touched and and we're now just cramming at the last minute trying to pass. Now, we probably can pass, you know, and pass means it's going to be, it's not good, <laughs> you know, it's, but, is humanity going to go extinct? No, it's not that. It's not that level of like we fail and everything's doomed, but it's also not going to be good. You know, we're not. 
materially affects the rest of our lives. It's an important exam, shall we say. Um, so, you know, that, and that's uh, hopefully, the, with those two terrible analogies out the way, the best way of describing it is that climate change is not binary. We're neither, f there, are, there are infinitesimal levels of fucked. And so we're not just completely fucked or everything's fine. Because that's what everyone basically has in their heads. They always want to be like, are we fine or are we fucked? And it's like, that's, that is not, neither of those is going to happen. But everything in between that actually matters is the real stuff that we're talking about, which is, it's going to be pretty bad, but it's also not going to be awful. At an aggregate level, for some people, it will be terrible. And so the more we do, the less terrible it will be for individual people. And, and it's just keeping that in your head all the time that all of this does matter. People will go, people will always come back to the idea that, you know, as you sort of said earlier, people will often quickly go to, ah, but this is happening, something else is happening. So it doesn't matter. This doesn't, this other thing doesn't matter. What I do doesn't matter. It all matters. It genuinely, everything matters. And so, yes, some things matter more because they're bigger, but it's all important. And so, just keep that in your head all the time is, is how I would always try to advise people on this. It's like everything you do is important and everything that everybody does on yeah. this is important. It's just that some, you know, things are more important than others, but it, it all reduces suffering. I think it's it's a good, I like I, you know, discussing it as you do is, is not binary. To, to know that we could just be a bit fucked compared to monumentally fucked is, you know, yeah. I think it's a really good way to look at it. Um, I, I should also say, I, I was going to say, you should feel vindicated for your five fillings. Uh, well, you know, forget to brush your teeth while being a parent, I think is entirely allowed. It's one of the things where I always think, uh, you know, why we, we get blamed for leaving things to young people uh, and deal with climate crisis to young people. But I think they've got energy. Yeah. They haven't had to. I couldn't do anything for the first two years of being a parent. I was a mess. I couldn't, pr I couldn't do anything of use. And I think your example is a really good indication of that. This is why young people need That's to do very it. That's true. Because they can be awake at 10 p.m. at night and do yeah, things. We need, we need uh, them yeah. to just keep, keep the energy levels up. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much, at the end of the day, going to bed so exhausted you can barely stand up going i could spend two minutes brushing my teeth or i could spend 20 seconds brushing my teeth and then i'll be asleep earlier and i guess yeah yeah we just need i don't know we need everybody to be uh per perked up we need we need that good night's rest and then keep keep fighting that's it. That's it. But, you know, just maybe let new parents not yeah, deal with it. Um, yeah, oh. I totally agree. Well, well thank you. Matt. Listen, it's, it's been lovely chatting to you. Um, and, and uh, the, you know, the last question is you've, you've got so much of your own stuff, which I will uh, insist, listen, get your book, Hot Mess, which is brilliant. Your fantastic Radio 4 show, Net Zero. I know you've done one with Mark Watson, which I haven't heard um, as well. It was a little while ago. Um, but, but apart from yourself, what other kind of writers, campaigners, sites, who are the people that you go to for good advice insight on climate politics are there a couple of people that you would you would recommend listeners now, check this out? is a question that i should have absolutely prefer prepared for a lot more because there are 
And I, at the moment, cannot think for the life of me of who <laughs> anybody should go and listen. So I, 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 when I was writing my book, I read loads of climate books, which was really nice because there's lots of people that I know or that I'm a big fan of that I sort of read. And I now do not want to listen to anything or read anything. I've basically been listening, listening to Beatles podcasts for the last nine months <laughs> because I'm like, I'm still so like just getting over like, ingesting everything about climate change uh, on top of doing it for my job as well uh, f- for about a year. Um, there's some really good books um, that I'd recommend. Uh, there's one called Saving Us by uh, Catherine Hayhoe. Um, who's an American uh, Christian and climate scientist. So she's really interesting. She goes and speaks to lots of different groups about it. Um, She's got some TED Talks as well. Um, There's a podcast called Drilled, which is excellent. Again, it's American. Um, There's, uh, and it's very much about the fossil fuel industry uh, and all the shenanigans, shall we say, going on there. Um, There's, yeah, there's a real, actually, here's a great thing to watch on, I think it's still on iPlayer. Um, there's a documentary called The People Versus Climate Change, which is about the UK's climate assembly. And it follows lots of, you know, so the UK climate assembly is one of the, actually one of the best things I think that's happened, <coughs> sorry, in the last um the last few years on climate change, which is basically 100 people, I think it was, were taken at random. Uh, you know, picked from as a representative uh, of, of the UK um, and basically made to learn about climate change for, I think, three or four weekends and then come up with their own recommendations that would be given in Parliament. And it was incredible. And these people went on a journey. And this documentary sort of follows just a handful of the people that went on that journey of like being picked out of the air, have not thinking that climate change has got anything to do with them or their life learning about it, understanding it importantly. And that and, and that's the thing. If people have the space to understand why it's important to them and their lives, they become absolutely on board with it and on board with the solutions that we have to make. But it's that it's it's that space, it's the and it's working together with other people and and going on a journey and showing people other people that are like them going on that journey of understanding properly climate change and you know there's a handful of people that will never be on board with it and that will you know because it's part of their identity is i don't this is not me but most people you know nine out of ten people are very open to understanding things that will impact their lives and and watching you know those people go and go on a journey is amazing so yeah go and watch that documentary if you've got time I've been meaning to get Matt on for ages, so it was great to finally get to chat to him for this. Uh, Matt can be found on at Matt Winning on Twitter or his website, mattwinning.com, where you'll find details of his brilliant book, Hot Mess, What on Earth Can We Do About Climate Change? And also his Radio 4 series, Net Zero, which is a brilliant listen and available on iPlayer. And I've put all those links in the podcast blurb too, as well as his Radio 4 show with Mark Watson called Seriously Though, The Planet. Do check them all out.
Who else shall I chat to, considering... Um, hang on, let me check my notes. Our place in the world is an economic climate security disaster zone. Uh, what else do you want to hear about politics-wise, or should I be delving into politics of other countries, like perhaps Brazil as necessary escapism, or to help you know where to add to your list for places to escape to? Let me know, and you can do that via the Parpol Bro Twitter or Facebook group, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. <laughs> And that's that for that clap trap. Sorry, I mean partly political broadcast podcast. And if you've managed to put yourself through what is essentially a blend of all the most depressing bits of humanity and a clown car squished into audio form, then please do recommend this show to other people who might like it. Donate to the Kofi or join the Patreon if you can afford to and give the show a noise review at Apple Podcasts or similar podcast hovels. Thanks, yeah, to Acast, my brother, Last Skeptic, and Cat Day. And this will be back next week when it's discovered that Suella Bravman is actually called Leaky Sue due to a weird obsession with the vegetable often associated with whales. It was found out after she put it in a work email from her personal account that 4,000 people received. Bye! This week's show was sponsored by Bravman Protection Software, protecting your computer from all threats by sending them your info first so they don't have to bother hacking into your system. Nothing will keep your important details more protected from spies than the spies having it all hand-delivered to them in an organised file, meaning there's no chance they'll bother to decode your password, leaving it completely and utterly safe. Bravman Protection Software, protecting your privacy by making everyone know about it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.